You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Still the same podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm in Houston, Texas, and, well, I'm an ordinary host on this show. Uh, with me are two guests from other shows on the network, which means, yep, it's crossover week. So, hi, Josh Holton Schroffer. How are you, sir? Hey, it is great to be here. I'm so happy to uh, to make it onto this show. This has been a uh, Three-year long-term plan of mine is just to eventually get onto, uh, <laughs> eventually make it onto the Mothership show. So great to be here. Welcome aboard the Mothership. <laughs> well, it's a crossover event. So where are you crossing over from? Oh yeah, so uh, I'm new. I'm normally half of uh, Before They Were Live with mm-hmm. Michael, Michael Farmer, and uh, he and I just are working our way through the Disney canon. Um, so we are currently, let's see, our last movie was Hercules, and uh, the next one that you'll hear from us will be Mulan. Oh, wow. Just in time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Actually, yeah. So um, so I'm recording today from Tampa, Florida, but hopefully by the time people hear this, then I will be back on an airplane uh, and on my way back to China, which is where I normally uh, record from. So, Excellent. Also crossing over is Jay Eldred. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. It is a wonderful fall day here in North Carolina, which means it is 80 degrees. <laughs> and I don't like it one bit. It needs to be colder. Yeah. But uh, doing fairly well. And I guess I'm crossing over from various shows on the network. You've probably heard me on Christian Humanist Profiles, on Sectarian Review, and the Christian Feminist podcast would be the top three that I generally show up on. Yeah, you're you're kind of all over the place, Jay. Yeah, I'm I'm like the perennial guest host. <laughs> well, it's good. It's 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 good. It's good to have one. I'm thinking of like the classic era of of game shows when you you kind of saw the same sort of bit actors, you know, that would be on. You know, hey, I remember them from a episode of Murder She Wrote. And there he is on the show. Is that is that is that you, Jay? As long as I'm not the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you don't have any black black gloves kind of reaching in from off screen. <laughs> Sorry, murder she wrote tropes, guy. Murder she wrote. It is late in the afternoon. I'm tired, and that means I'm getting <sighs> esoteric. So our crossover this week is M Night Shyamalan films. And the one that I very quickly did was his second big film, uh, which was Unbreakable. So I like to start these discussions out with just some some biography, your your history of the film, your impressions of it. Uh, did you see it when it came out? If not, when did you see it? So let's start with Josh. Okay, so... Yeah, I believe I saw this in theaters. I'm not positive, but I think at this at this time of my life in 2000, um, I was a, I was frequently in a movie theater, and so I and I was by this point um, I had seen The Sixth Sense and really loved it, and I was I was a big M Night fan and continued to be uh, for his next couple films, and then I mean I don't know how much of his. <laughs> um, <laughs> What what all would discuss here, but uh, yeah, that that did not last forever. I think I'm I'm in the norm on that one, but um, yeah, I was I was definitely into uh, into M Night. I still don't know how to pronounce his name, so I'm just gonna call him M Night. Um, but yeah, 
I I loved it. Um, I was the reason I'm on this episode actually is because um, Michael Farmer reminded me of how much I loved this film. <laughs> he said, "You talked about this all the time when we were <laughs> in college together about how great this movie was. You have to do that. You have to do that episode." So awesome. So, yes, well, here I am. Um, yeah, Jay, what's your what's your experience with it? Well, I did not see the film when it came out. Um, one reason being that the nearest theater was probably an hour away and there were better things to be doing and spending money on in high, when I was in high school. Yeah. But I did see other, other parts of his work, you know, when they come on cable TV or, you know, blockbuster when that was the thing, but this was actually the first time that I have seen on seen the movie. So when I saw it and signed up for it and said, Oh, maybe I'll actually get around to watching it. Now, as we were talking before the show, I'd seen other of, of Shyamalan's films, so I'm familiar with his style of work, but just hadn't seen this one. I think I saw it. I think I saw it in theater, uh, and I remember having I remember having a positive impression of it, but only remembering kind of the barest outlines of it. Um, I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested to hear, especially from you, Jay, because you've got first, you've got fresh first impressions. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I was watching the movie with the, with this kind of continual, oh yeah, that happens, and oh yeah, that happens, <laughs> which is a different kind of experience. Yeah, and I'm a little bit in between you two guys because I've, I definitely watched this movie multiple times mm. in the early 2000s because I, I really loved it. So I, I remembered it pretty well, but it has been – I mean it's probably been at least 15 years, if not longer, since I've seen it. So there was there was a couple of things and there was like, oh, yeah, I forgot, um, you know. But mostly just in uh, – for me as, as a fan, it was mostly just, oh, yeah, I forgot how well done this is. I forgot how, how tightly this uh, narrative is, is kind of put together, how, how nice the foreshadowing is. Um, it's it's, it's – uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good movie um, I think all around. So it was exciting to watch it again. Well, maybe before we get too much further uh, – would either of you want to give a, a just just like a real quick thumbnail sketch of what the film is about for those who haven't seen it? Yeah, sure. Um, I I don't know why you're listening to us if you haven't seen this movie. You should <laughs> you should go watch it. Um, I think it's fair, it's fair point. In, in just a minute, we're gonna spoil or I'll I'll spoil it as literally I, everything. Yeah, literally yep. everything as I explain it here. But um, yeah, the actually um. I saw Quentin Tarantino said, you know, that they should have advertised this movie as what if Superman was on Earth, but he didn't know he was Superman, which I think yeah. is like that summarizes it really well. So basically you go through – you follow David Dunn, uh, who's the hero, and you just we, – we follow his um, – basically his discovery of his own superpower, and we – we basically learn of his superpower right along with him, which I think is one of the cool things that this movie does is it does not shy away from skepticism. And maybe we'll get get uh, deeper into that later. But uh, as as the movie progresses, we see him um, – He the movie begins uh, – or the plot, I guess, begins with, with him surviving a train wreck and uh, then kind of dealing with the aftermath of that, of, of how is he the one sole survivor. And the person who kind of guides him along in that journey is um, a, a man named Elijah, who has been on the lookout uh, for for special people <laughs> for his whole life, um, because he's he feels he's on the opposite end of the spectrum, having a, a genetic bone disease that keeps him uh, from being able to do anything active without getting injured. And so he his theory is, um, if I exist, then somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum must exist. And that's that's basically the plot of the movie. It's just you know exploring that idea. Yeah. So a superhero origin story, but in the uh, in the inimitable Shyamalan vein. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of the inimitable Shyamalan vein, maybe we need, maybe that's a good place to start uh, because it, it sounds like we all had seen the sixth sense before we saw this. And mm -hmm. the sixth sense was really the only movie 
that his that his reputation would have been based on at this point. Like I think he had like some some writing credits before this, um, and maybe maybe like a very small film, maybe. But the Sixth Sense was really his big burst onto the scene, and this is the one after that. So, what would you what did you expect from this film based on? the sixth sense if you can excavate those memories josh because they'll be fresher for you jay (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i'm actually interested i don't want to uh answer all the questions first we've got to let jay go first a couple times here but um (laughs) but yeah going back to the time since since i saw it in chronology and you saw it later um going back to that time uh yeah like there's there's really something i feel like in the air um and I, I don't know if this was just me or if I, I feel like it was more than me. I feel like when uh, I grew up in – I mean I was born in 81. So like by the time this movie's out, like I'm, I'm hitting my – what? My late teens, you know? And mm-hmm. I feel like there was a bit of um, – I know there's always a bit of a nostalgia for the previous generation. But I felt like for for our – time period especially i don't know if it's because we are like uh you know children of the boomers and the boomers like have such a a dramatic uh pop cultural imprint but i feel like there was always this sort of like um what just something in the air about like who's going to be our beatles who's going to be like what's going to be our star wars moment um you know, who's going to be our Johnny Carson? Is it going to be Dave or Jay? And like all that stuff was kind of (laughs) always in the air. And I feel like M night was going to be our Alfred Hitchcock, you know, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was a big thing. Like it was like, you want to be on board with, with this guy because he's going to be our Hitchcock. And so, yeah, you were looking for the, uh, you know, where's his cameo going to be. And, uh, like the use of color is so important in both the sixth sense and this movie. So like you're going in like with like, okay, like what color should I be looking at? You know, like what, what, uh, like I remember that being a big thing. And, um, I remember it being a big thing of, of obviously the twist endings, you know, like sixth sense had such an amazing twist ending. Um, and so everybody was looking for us. Is he going to be able to do that again? Can he pull another one over on us? You know? Um, and so, so that was, that was another thing. And they, they actually even allude to that in this film, you know, like when a his mother first gives him a comic book she says they say this one has a surprise ending <laughs> you know? yes so, yeah so there's mm-hmm. a little bit on the nose but that was that was part of his style you know was mm-hmm. was that on the noseness so um i think yeah i just i ate all that stuff up at the time whereas you jay had came at this movie mm-hmm. after a uh shall we call it a turn <laughs> in that reputation I don't know if it was a turn in the, in his reputation because I'm not sure what his reputation was to me anyway. Okay. Um, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. I yeah. Talking about you know the sixth sense, I actually managed to watch that spoiler free. I think like wow. I knew it existed. I knew it existed, but it was one of those that by the time it came out and I and I watched it then. I still didn't really I knew it I knew it had caused a stir. I knew there was a twist ending. I didn't know what that ending was, but again, it's early 2000s and literally middle of nowhere Pennsylvania. So, my yeah. opportunity for for finding out anything was relatively nil. Pre-social um, media. <laughs> yes. Pre-social media movie watching was an entirely different experience. <laughs> and needing needing to uh, hang up the phone so you can use the internet. Um <laughs> But even knowing that it had a twist ending, the twist of The Sixth Sense wasn't much of a twist for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of it is that he somehow is, I don't know how to put this, but he writes he writes movies for people who read books or something. That's not quite sure how I, wanted, how I want to say it. But mm-hmm. it's like if, you, if you've read it, my feeling is if you've read enough, then you'll see where he's going with it. Mm. That's mm-hmm. kind of where where I'm at. And then, just as a side note, I married someone who's even better or worse than that than me. If depending on how, how you want to put that, mm-hmm. um, she, we'll be watching a movie and she'll pause it and she'll look at me and say, "This is what's going to happen." And she'll spend ten minutes outlining the plot, and then we'll watch it. And ninety nine percent of the time, <laughs> that is what happens. 
I don't know how she does it. But anyway, um, so when I was coming into into Unbreakable, um, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I don't really purchase. I don't. I don't want to say I don't care for his films, but it's not the kind of thing that I'll go out and purposefully seek out. If it's on, I might watch it. But with this one, I sat down and I'm like, okay, I will intentionally watch what he's done. And although I don't know that I would rewatch it unless I decided to go on and watch the rest of the movies in the trilogy, I think it's a really decent, it's a decent film. I like the choice, some of the choices that he made. Yeah. I, it's, I, I think it's so interesting to to hear, uh, knowing knowing w- that you'd watched other M Night Shyamalan movies, and then uh, and then coming to him like like you know that he made Sixth Sense, and Sixth Sense is you know it's it's a good movie. Um, maybe the twist mm-hmm. wasn't surprising to you, but we're downstream not only from that twist. Even if you didn't know that twist, you've, how many movies have you seen? that are constructed in that same way towards the twist, you know, uh, quite a few. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah. And when this movie came out, um, all I'd seen was Sixth sense. I had, you know, the last airbender couldn't be imagined the happening. No, no, not even a gleam in his eye. <laughs> so there was a lot of anticipation and, Seeing that it was a also a, a superhero movie brought a lot of anticipation for me because uh, I was I was really interested in those, but there hadn't been a whole lot of really good ones yet. Um, that was just it was just sort of starting with like I think like the the, the first X Men franchise movie was maybe the same year or the next year something like that. Yeah, X Men was the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there, you're right. It was, it was a, still a very quirky, I mean, it's weird, I think for people now mm-hmm. to go back, um, because it's become so mainstream with the Marvel cinematic universe in yeah. particular that like, it's hard to, to think back to like, there was a time when actually this movie wasn't even really promoted as a superhero movie because superhero movies were too like quirky or too niche and so they wanted it they they actually were the trailers for this one actually played up more on the psychological thriller side of things that sixth sense kind of was um because it's like from the same director and uh i think that actually didn't do the movie any favors because it's not really that um but yeah like it uh Yes, it's it's weird to think about that context of like, yeah, superhero movies were still really for a very uh, small, uh, geeky or nerdy audience at this time. Yeah. At the time that this was made. Yeah. I mean, the Batman movies, um, the the, uh, the the Tim Burton Batman movies had been had had mainstream success. Um, the Blade movies got, you know, they the. I remember the first, I think maybe the first Blade movie was out by this point. And and it was, you know, it was, it was fine. Um, You know, but they were trying to do the dark, trying to do the dark Tim Burton thing. Right. Yeah. Well, and actually, so I think this movie, this movie is spitting distance from Batman and Robin. Uh, like Batman and Robin, I think was 97, maybe 96 mm. or 97. So like, mm. I mean, it's, it's in there, but like, I feel like Batman to use this movie as, as the kind of the lens of looking through that, like Batman and Robin is the entirely opposite end of the spectrum, right? Like it was <laughs> as, as kitschy and campy and as not settled in a real universe as possible. And mm-hmm. like this movie is entirely at the other end. And I think that's, that is, um, you know, a shift that maybe was inevitable to happen at some point. But, uh, yeah, this movie really brought a different tone to um, superhero movies. And, I mean, you're right, Blade did as well, but I, I don't know. And X-Men did as well. Like, X, I remember there, in that first X-Men movie, there's the joke about, like, you know, what did you want us to be dressed up in yellow jumpsuits or something like that? Like, <laughs> right. like there, that joke is in there because there's a there's – a, a sense of reality to those X-Men movies, but I feel like this, this movie really pushed in that direction. Well, we'd also had the, uh, we'd also just had the matrix. And so matrix on top of blade 
and then here come the X-Men. And, like, apparently superheroes now can only wear black leather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, the, the, the full-color full color superheroes, you know, you're, you're going to need... You're going to need another, you know, 10 or 15 years before they risk that, it seems. Ah, well. This movie, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of what would be... Let, we've, we've kind of already talked about superheroes, so and talked about what kind of expectations people had of superhero movies coming into this, uh, what the state of the genre was. So I think that's probably a good a good place to shift. So Unbreakable is it's not just a superhero movie. It's a superhero film in which the genre rules are known and are part mm-hmm. of understanding the world. Mm-hmm. So what are how does that work? How does Unbreakable work as a self-conscious or coming-to-consciousness superhero film? Jay? Well, maybe not a superhero film, but definitely a comic book film. is that the way that it is shot is each shot could be a panel in a comic or in a or in a Mm. graphic novel Mm -hmm. the the close-ups are close there's very little in the way of background unless it's important you get the there's no real fadeaways it's First, we're at a ballpark, and now we're back in the apartment, and who knows how they got there or what happened. You know, we don't really see much in, in the way of interstitial things. Um, and then one thing that stuck out to me was the soundtrack, or rather lack thereof. Um, I know it exists mm-hmm. because I had to. I know it exists because I had to look it up. But even playing through it, you don't have much in the way of like grand scores or anything like that. It's more of the background it's it's literally background music which is what a good soundtrack should be in my opinion but it very much put me in mind of okay so i'm watching the television but i might as well be holding the book in my hands and watching the and you know reading the panels or what or flipping the pages yeah i love that comment on no interstitials i i i actually did not think in those terms um that's that's really good um I think along those same line, like there's just a real economy of words in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like so much is like it's a very, very visual movie and so much so much of the work of the narrative and the storytelling of what's going on is done with the visuals and the framing of the visuals, as you said, um, there any and and they really do it in a clever way. I feel like, um, you know, somebody's always standing in a door frame or being viewed through a mirror or um, like there's there's. There's all this framing that's always happening, um, but it's not uh, the Hulk that came out in 2003, where right. they also used a lot of framing. And actually, I liked the style of that movie. I know that movie mm-hmm. gets um, panned a lot, but I actually liked how that Hulk that came out in 03 looked. But this is this is the same idea, but done in a in an extremely natural way. Like mm-hmm. just it's 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 just the intentionality of. Okay, we're going to frame this shot in such a way that you are standing or sitting within a frame, also within it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one of the things I, I was just trying to notice, like, what am I, what am I seeing? And one of the things that I observed was how many, how many shots there were in which one person was speaking to another person, and you only got to see one person's face and emotions. Mm-hmm. The other person was just completely obscured. Um, probably the one that stands out is when uh, uh, I can't even remember David Dunn's wife's name. Like uh, that's completely blanking. The son is Joseph. David Dunn, Joseph Dunn. I can't remember her name. Anyway, there's a scene in which she's uh, she's come upstairs and she's speaking to him through his bedroom door, and all you see is the back of his head, and she's she's sharing this thing with him that's that's enormously emotional and his response to what she says is there's a lot riding on it in that moment but you have no access to his face <laughs> like that you know that those kinds of decisions to to say no we're we're just going to live in in the ambiguity of the panel <laughs> that you don't see this person's face when this person says this thing um 
that that I thought was uh, it it really heightened the uh, the emotional distance between characters uh, the way that as, as through most of the movie they are emotionally cut off from each other um, reacting in isolation from each other uh, that's a great insight that um, yeah that they're emotionally distanced from each other they actually they they specifically say that at one point in the movie, yeah. you know, uh, Audrey is her name. I had to look it up also. Um, Audrey says, you know, are you are you purposely keeping me and Joseph at a distance? And mm-hmm. and and he says, yeah, I am, but I don't know why. And but I I think that's that's really good that that ice the responses in isolation works for within the movie. I also think it also plays into this uh, the genre rules of a superhero movie. Like there's this sacrificial love that David has for Audrey. Um, but there's also it's it's packed with secrets from the very beginning. He's yeah. been lying to her mm-hmm. about his uh, th- his injury in the accident. Um, at the end of the movie, he doesn't want to reveal his secret identity to her. Um, he reveals it to Joseph, but not to her. And so there's. I feel like that's that's just classic comic book stuff, you know. Like there's there is this uh, love that's happening, but it's always packed full of of secrets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's classic Superman. Like Lois can't know, um, or or any other any other superhero where the with the knowledge of the identity comes risk to those that they love. Um, and, and, and this is a story that's about that. It's not like an incidental complication on the side of a story that's mostly about the villain-hero conflict. It's mostly about <laughs> the ways that discovering who he is is cutting himself, cutting him off from the people in his life. Uh, that that I that I find enormously interesting. Um, well, the only guy who knows the rules is. Elijah. Let's talk about him because his. This is the character that I remembered most visually, but least in terms of kind of personality and performance. Maybe because this was one of the first, really one of the first movies I'd ever seen Samuel L. Jackson in. What can we say about Elijah? He has good taste. <laughs> say more. Um, so Elijah is, you know, for most of the movie, he appears to be a not so humble comic book collector. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the scenes that, that stuck out to me, he ends up chastising one of his potential customers because he's going to buy some original, not published art from a, from a well-known artist for his four-year-old son and, you know, basically says, you know, this is, this is a gallery, not a toy store. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know that that's, I, I couldn't tell you why, but that kind of like struck a chord with me. It's like, yes, we should, we should, <laughs> there, there, there are things that are, that are worth consuming that aren't necessarily for, for everyone. If that, I, I know that might sound elitist, but, <laughs> but well, not all art is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, and and to say the the fact that this is uh, that this was drawn for a comic book or of comic book heroes um, does not make it for children, right? Uh, you know, the, there's there's so much more depth to it. It's not just neat. Um, yeah, he he's so invested in all of it, uh, but it's pretty clear based on you know, the ways that it works within the flashbacks of his early life that, I mean, we can see why comics became what they are to him. Yeah. When you say he's invested, that's like one of the things that I love is when we, when we, when David Dunn first meets Elijah and uh, he says, you know, how certain are you that you've never taken ill? (laughs) And and David says, I don't know, 75%. And he says, 
well, that's not certain at all, is it? I'm going to be very skeptical about all this. <laughs> and, and like, like he's just in his own head. Like we, like nobody knows what in the world he's talking about, but yeah. like he's approaching it with this deep skepticism, but he is extremely invested as like we get at the end. He says, you know, there were so many times I doubted myself, but I just knew I had to keep searching for, for my opposite, you know? And mm. so, yeah, he is, uh, yeah, he's he's definitely mentally unfit, but um, in in kind of a charming way. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he's is, is he though? <laughs> I, I was just gonna say, is he actually unfit? I mean, I know I know Plato probably would say he was, you know, <laughs> but. So I think I actually I think this is a really I would love to hear what you guys have to say more about this um, because I, I I think this is a very interesting part of the movie and I don't have a solid answer on it. I feel like there's a little bit of, you know, um, he is seeing the world differently than others and there's a positive aspect of that. He says, mm-hmm. um, he says to Audrey that the, the world we live in is very mediocre and people don't open their minds to the extraordinary. So there's a way in which he's he's trying to re-enchant the world, um, and there's a there's a childlikeness uh, to him um, yeah. that I would and and yeah. So th- there's there's something in that, and and I have more to say, but I, I want to hear what you guys have to say. The the thing that I would say he's mentally unfit is that his means to the end is also childlike in the sense that. Um, Joseph is going to shoot his father in order to prove that he's a superhero. And yes. um, Elijah is going to kill hundreds of people. Like there's just a – there is no maturity in the understanding of like what a life is and and the value of a life. You know, It's very childlike in a um, – in an unhealthy way in in that sense you know like that 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 lack of understanding of of permanence <laughs> i guess mm. well i guess now, now is the point where we're like whoop 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 yeah we're going to have to talk about the twist <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh the train wreck uh the various disasters that elijah talks to uh, tell, tells David Dunn about that you know he's been observing disasters over the years, you know, waiting for the for the sole survivor that indicates there's someone who is the opposite from him, who is not, you know, sort of ultimately fragile, but, but is instead, you know, like the title, unbreakable. Uh, except the twist, the twist at the end is that he's been creating all of these disasters in order to find uh, this this person. Who turns out to be David Dunn, uh, the Bruce Willis character. So, even as he has been befriending him, even as he has been, uh, I think too, this came out what the year, uh, what the year after the Matrix. Like I know it was in production while the Matrix was in production. There's no way that M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan had known that that plot of that film. But here we have another larger than life african american man initiating uh our hero into the rules of a world that he does not understand one in which he will have not in which he will have powers he does not imagine so i great, know great parallel i yes yeah, I, I thought about it that way but yeah great parallel I know that when I watched this the first time i I had him in the mentor section he was the obi wan Mm-hmm. To find out that he was the Vader <laughs> like, again, not not to get us off topic, but one could argue that Obi Wan was the Vader all along. But oh well, <laughs> you need prequels for that one, though. Mm, no, no, no. All right. <laughs> well, well I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I'm not sure. I've only seen them all once, so well, let's let's can of worms that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that that was my um, my, my memory of, re- of my response to that twist because, I, well, that that was another that's another trope too. You know, the guy that knows the rules and our hero doesn't know the rules is being introduced into the world, and then the guy who knows the rules sit down sits down and like lays it all out for him. 
right? We know those tropes. You know, almost every franchise that's got um, any kind of magic or wonder to it in a more or less real world world environment has the rules mentor. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so uh, Shyamalan is using that trope to conceal (laughs) his, his, you know, his criminal mastermind, his, his arch nemesis character. Um, Even as he's telling us exactly who he is by -hmm. giving him an exaggeratedly large head, (laughs) (laughs) by giving him large eyes that shows that he has a penetrating vision that nonetheless skews the, nonetheless skews the world and Mm -hmm. so forth. Um, Well, even, even in his own words, he says that David Dunn is his exact opposite. And mm-hmm. so if he's an exact opposite and Dunn is supposed to be our hero, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah. It's there the whole time. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised that, you know, that people would see it coming or whatever. I, I think in some ways it doesn't matter um, if you see it coming or not, but it, I mean, it's, it is, it is fun to be surprised. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I I don't um, mind that I kind of have a naive viewing of a lot of things because I do get that that little pleasure of like oh that's what they were doing um, <laughs> so but um but yeah I do I do feel like it it also rewards the rewatching because then you can go back through and see exactly how it was being set up for you the entire time and. I mean, it's it's right there from the beginning. David Dunn calls him on it at the very beginning and says, "I see people like you all the time in my work. You know, like yeah. you're you're a bad guy. <laughs> I'm a good guy. You're a bad guy. <laughs> um, yeah. Other other comic rules, comic images, comic tropes that we're noting here. It's um, an, the, yeah, the hero overcoming his greatest fear. Yeah, I know it came toward the toward the end of the film. Usually in a superhero film, middle come, you know, toward the beginning or toward the middle. I think this one came more so toward the end. You know, um, puts me in mind of the various iterations of Batman, and you have Bruce Wayne, you know, dealing with bats. Where I think one of the films it was a well of water. I'm not sure which mm-hmm. one that one was, but toward the end of this one, you have done in a swimming pool. Um, fighting, you know, water, and I think he's also like wrapped up in a tarp, like he fell on top of it and got entangled in, in yeah. it, and and we know from previous a previous scene that that water is his weakness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene, that scene actually kind of triggers some panic in me. <laughs> Being both enclosed and submerged, I. Mm. That that one no no thank you. Yeah. Any number of bats just dump the bats on me. But <laughs> none of this wrapped in a tarp in a pool business. Yeah, the facing of the fear um the thing the sorts of scenes that we've seen in other kind of first first movies in a franchise kind of origin story um scenes like uh, I, I still remember the uh, Tobey Maguire. Tobey Maguire, yeah, uh, Spider-Man trying to figure out how to make his webs work. <laughs> <laughs> like those kinds of those kinds of scenes, and except here, it's how much can I bench press? Yeah. That was a fun scene. Yeah. Uh, what 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 struck you about that, Jay? Just the um, so for anyone again who might not have actually seen seen the movie, um, the Bruce Willis character decides you know he's going to go and see how much he can how much he can bench press, and through adding various weights or whatnot, um, you know it's like the first time round is like two hundred and fifty pounds, and he's like well I can't do that, and you know his son Joseph is like well you just did. And so he tells him, well, take it off. This could be dangerous. And rather than taking it off, he puts more on. And, you know, David does it again. He said, well, how much did you put on? And just it's just the way that he says it's like all of it. It was just like, yes, because I can totally see, you know, that's probably what I would have done if I just watched my dad do that. Like, yeah, let's see what else can happen. Yeah. 
this and, is and the- then and then at the then at the end um of that scene when when they have uh, they look like a uh, five gallon buckets duct taped to the <laughs> to the bar yeah. and filled up it's like i know people that would do that unironically that that mm-hmm. is what they would that is how they would adjust their weight set yeah oh, i i remember that now you for that scene to work you really have to believe that david dunn has no peripheral vision <laughs> i wouldn't know i don't i don't bench press <laughs> okay <laughs> well i mean if you're lying on a bench the the bar has to be actually far enough above you that unless you just have incredible tunnel vision you actually can see the weights and whether or not someone is putting weights on or taking them off but because it's this uh the sh- the, the the scene is is shot just kind of tight in on his face as he lies on his back um we don't see what his son is doing. We simply hear. And and it could be the sound of weight going on or weight going off, right? So so the the trick works for the viewer, um, but I remember watching it. Uh, well, I was watching it last night and thinking, like, if you rotated your head, like, half an inch, <laughs> you would be able to see what's happening. Um, not even that. Uh, that's true, but there's there's also the I think there's but it's the charming. other. It is charming, and that's the other powerful part about the scene is this is David Dunn kind of coming on board for the first time. So he's yeah. like maybe he's playing along a little bit because there's a part of him that that wants to find out, that wants to believe, but it's not ready yet. You know, like he really needs Joseph to prod it out of him that oh maybe there is something here. So yeah, you can kind of give it a pass in that way too. That maybe he's kind of purposely not looking because he kind of wants to find out, but he he also doesn't want to commit to that and look like a fool yeah. <laughs> you know for believing in in superheroes so yeah, yeah. well th- one of the things that makes this scene work so well is not just david dunn slowly coming to realize i apparently don't have an upper limit to my bench press like every time it's grueling every time he's giving it all of his effort but he just keeps being able to do more which I love that idea of super strength, the, the kind of like, you know, just sort of like effortlessly swatting cars away, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, OK, that that's 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 very Marvel-y comic booky. But the um, yes, he's super strong, but every single time he just has to give it all because his ultimate limit is always just just within reach, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but it's also charming because his son is there. And this is the, again, this is the second big M. Night Shyamalan fan. The second one with Bruce Willis. And the second one with Bruce Willis and a little boy who seems to be spooked about everything. And is it the same boy? It is not the same boy. First okay. boy is Haley Joel Osment. That's okay. I didn't pay close enough attention to the cast list on... Mm-hmm. On this one, they looked the same to me. They have a lot of the same vibe, if you will, but uh, no, it's 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 not this it's not the same boy. But um, I don't know. Would you call the dynamic similar? What do, what do you think of the father son dynamic, Josh? Um, I really like it. I mean, I think I think the reason it works in this movie is because. Joseph, like I said, uh, Joseph is kind of our, like the, he's the true believer before the audience, before the audience is the true believer, before David Dunn is the true believer, like he's, you know, he wants his dad to do this thing, you know, he really wants to believe it, and um, he's also, like, I mean, at at the very, you know, when we we first meet the family as david dunn's coming out of the hospital joseph uh puts the puts the parents hands together um yeah. which then they immediately drop as soon as he turns like Ugh. you can really i know i know it's so powerful it's so well done like it's just really well done it communicates so much and um mm-hmm. there's just uh yeah so there's something in like his his character like what's he doing in the movie is he's he's helping to 
like he's wanting things to be uh, enchanted and he's wanting things to be romantic and he's wanting that, you know, like he wants his family to stay together. And he, you know, he tries to uh, he tries to stand up to bullies to find out if he's like his dad is also, you know, mm-hmm. um, he he knows that his dad is going to be able to, uh, you know, play football better than the the, you know, the the latest college you know, all-star or whatever. The man like, who's 20 years younger than him. Yeah. Like, I mean, he just, I, I think that he pulls everybody else through, or at least the Dunn family, like he's pulling them through the movie in the right direction. You know, like he's, I think there's something really, uh, yeah, really cool about that, um, about that relationship where it's, it's a little bit like, uh, I mean, not to stretch it too far, but it is a little bit like, um, you know, unless you have faith like a child, you know, you won't enter yeah. like this. You know, like there's there's a childlikeness that I think is being celebrated in the movie. Um, that's cool. You already mentioned that Elijah had a childlikeness in his perspective as well. And that, yeah. so is there more is there more that we can explore in that? Because there's other like I'm, I'm thinking back to the, like the little girl that we don't even talk to in the opening scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the little yeah. upside down girl. <laughs> yes. No, I think it's the upside down is the important part. So in in this movie, the ones I noticed, so maybe you guys noticed some other ones. Uh, there's the upside down girl, and then when we first yeah. meet Joseph, he's watching TV upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, when when Elijah becomes a believer. It, like he's he's skeptical that David Dunn is actually the one until he's upside down and he sees uh, the oh, man with yeah. the gun upside down on the stairs. Um, yeah, the scene that we were just talking about the um, the, the 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 bench lifting scene. Uh, the uh, Joseph's head comes in from the top of the screen, so we're viewing it upside down mm-hmm. oh, when he yeah. says when All he says. It all of it so i think there is something about like seeing the world in a different direction uh that is positive in this movie um yeah go ahead jay i was gonna say i think another one of those scenes because the upside down was something else that i had written down isn't the um the comic book that elijah finds when he when he figures out who david is isn't that upside down to him as well oh i believe that's right yeah in the when he's catatonic in the shop Right. Yes, it's upside down, and then he rotates it. But I mm-hmm. think the did the same thing happen when he got his first comic book. Right. When he gets his first comic, it's also upside down. I think that's another like, yeah, kids seeing things upside down. You know, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like he, yeah, I, yeah. There's, there's a, I don't know. There's, there's maybe more to unpack there, but I, I do think that there's something. Um, being communicated to us about like this look at the world slightly skewed not not um it's not a different world it's not a you know like it's the same world it's just it's slightly different and i think there is a positive side to that that's being presented in this movie as well as obviously a negative side because it is connected to the villain (laughs) and i haven't quite worked that out like where where does that childlikeness like turn into a negative feature but Maybe you guys yeah. have something to illuminate that. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of... Uh, I'm thinking of the ways that my children consistently... Uh, my daughter in particular consistently overestimates my capacities. <laughs> well, Daddy can accomplish this. Daddy could pick that up. And I'm like, no. Daddy would throw Daddy's back out. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy mm-hmm. doesn't know how to fix that. Daddy is not a certified electrician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. And that is a wonderful part about kids though, is their idea of of where the limits are is mm-hmm. is completely different. And that's and that's good. That's valuable. Um yeah, I from my own fatherhood, like one of my joys of being a dad is to see things through my kids' eyes because they just mm-hmm. see things so differently than I would. And um, or they remind me of how I used to see things. Mm. And and it's just, yeah, it's 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 one of the best parts about about being a dad. Um, one an artist that I really like is uh, Sister Carita, Carita Kent. And that was one of her um, 
uh, like how to be a good artist is like go borrow a kid, like go hang out with a kid for a while, see <laughs> the world the way that they're seeing it. It like opens up your, you know, your understanding of, of the way things can be. Well, we are getting pretty close to an hour. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far over that. But there's still, I feel like there's a lot of things that we haven't touched. So yeah. maybe lightning round. Um, what are some, uh, I don't know, Shyamalan visual language things we want to bring out? Uh, other standout performances we haven't spoken to as of yet. Um, and one thing that I'm interested in is, do we think that Unbreakable had any influence on the genre? Whatever of those things uh, you'd like to run with, gentlemen. Lightning round. Okay, so real quick, just to briefly touch on what we were talking about with the childlike character, I think um, in both with the girl on the train and with Joseph, we both see them eventually turn right side up to see the world the way that it should be. Yeah. I'm not sure that that Elijah is willing to sit up, we might say, because mm-hmm. all of his all of his defining moments, he's seen he's seen the world skewed, and that's kind of where he wants to be. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of an off the off the mind thought. Um, one of the visual cues that really struck me was when Elijah fell down the stairs and his cane shattered oh, again. Yeah. Again, the opposite of Unbreakable, so it's signifying not just that he's the opposite, but he and he himself indeed is broken. Um, and then, as far as the performance, I will always love me some Robin Wright. <laughs> yeah, from 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 the Princess Bride to House of Cards. Yeah, uh, she's. I had forgotten. Probably no, I hadn't forgotten. I didn't appreciate it. Twenty years ago, I was not interested in that side of the story. Um, now I am. Uh, I I tweeted about it, but twenty years like twenty uh, two year old David thought this was a neat movie. Forty uh, two year old David wept, wept unashamedly uh, at particular scenes in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Because they were just um, the vulnerability of their relationship to these pressures that neither of them can articulate. It's just so fragile. Like even as he's this unbreakable man that you can like you know throw through a brick wall. You know you can't kill him with a train wreck, but his life is falling apart, and he is unable to name why. Um. There's just, there, there's just something about the fact that Shyamalan relocated the center of gravity of the story from the from the power and the unbreakability, you know, for, for, from the action scene into the that that psychological side of it uh, was was fascinating to me, and the ways that this man has been intentionally alienating himself from himself so that he can be in these other relationships where he thinks he has to limit himself to be, to love and to be loved and to be accepted. Um, but then he has this, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. And to, to, when, when she says things like, I never would have wished you to not be in the football. <laughs> I would have never wished that injury on you. Things like that. Um, and knowing that he had intentionally chosen to step away from all of those things that were so important in order to choose her. Uh, anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of big stuff. Yeah, no, that's that's really great. And I think that's part of, um, to get to one of your lightning round questions, I do think that's part of the influence on the genre that we see, is the, the where is the center of gravity? Is it mm-hmm. in the action that the superhero can do or is it in their humanity? And I think, you know, 
again to not not to pick on Batman and Robin too too much, but like the center of gravity on that is definitely not their humanity, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas moving the center of gravity to their humanity, um, the the precursor to it would be like the early early um, Spider-Man comics, where so much of of it is Peter Parker sucks at high school, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or high school relationships, right? Like yeah. he's really bad at that, um, and he also has these superpowers. So like there's 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 a precursor to it, but I feel like in the movies, um, this is where that influence is. Like it's the superhero doing the not superhero stuff that's really interesting, um, and. And I don't, I don't know that we see a movie. I, I mean, I don't know the Marvel Cinematic Universe exists in the same way without that. Like all the most powerful <laughs> moments in those early Avengers movies are the 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 relationships between the characters and the you know when they're when they're talking when they're not mm-hmm. like the, yeah. the the big superhero stuff. Um, obviously, there's more big superhero stuff in those movies than there is in this movie, but. Like I, I still think that influence is there. That that shift of gravity is there. Um, so yeah, and I I totally agree with you guys. The when she the when she says um, it's not going to affect me either way, but I just want to know it's not going to affect me. It's not going to affect me. It's so that was mm-hmm. so real because mm-hmm. and you could see somebody in the script room like almost saying like that's you know people don't talk like that in movies but it is the way that people talk in real life you know when they're really trying to protect themselves and shelter themselves and almost convince themselves um and then of course she immediately breaks down as soon as she says no i haven't been with anyone else um so obviously the answer was going to affect her so yeah that's a very powerful performance there Mm -hmm. i mean not for lack of trying uh uh yeah yeah see, see the opening scene <laughs> that's, that's that's also true um <laughs> uh one of the things uh, you, you mentioned the uh was it you you were talking about the soundtrack jay right mm-hmm. yeah uh, what there's only one scene in which i particularly noticed music that couldn't be just sort of stuff that was playing in the scene um but there is something that that happens repeatedly which is the muting of sound in order to magnify some minor uh some some minor sound in the in in the scene so that everything kind of mutes and you hear the beeping monitors in the emergency room but you can't hear what people are saying right or uh everything mutes and you hear a clock ticking or you hear the just sort of train noises like train creakings but then at about, I don't know, wherever it is at the point in the movie when Dunn realizes he has this danger sense. When he's when he's having that experience, the sound mutes. And he focuses on a particular sound. And uh, I noted I'd been noticing just the way that the 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 way that he'd been using that Shyamalan had been using quietness throughout the film. And then he used quietness to signal danger sense. And I, and I suddenly thought, was that danger sense earlier? What was the Like, what was the danger earlier? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like he's on the train. Is he sensing that the disaster is about to happen? You know, Mm -hmm. like stuff like that, that kind of, that, that kind of thing. It made me wonder like how, like, is this consistent through the film? If I go back and watch it, am I going to notice something I didn't notice before about yeah. the way that's working? Because he's so consistent. I mean, things like uh, when he's detect when he first detects, um, oh, one of the scenes where he detects a danger at the football arena. He like he picks up on it, and everything kind of fo- everything kind of focuses down. And what you hear is the crowd in the arena chanting, defense, defense. And you see his back that says security across it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, okay, <laughs> I see what his, like, I see what he's here for. Um, it's, I, I just love those little, those little notes. I, I did absolutely would not have picked up on it. Uh, did not pick up on it 20 years ago, but now it's like, man, that's that's cool stuff. 
that is cool stuff. Yeah, that was yeah, that was the things that the I mean I I didn't pick up on that particular one either, but it's the stuff like that, it's the attention to detail that those of us who are like really in the M Night uh camp back <laughs> back in the day, like yeah. those are the things that we loved about his movies and yeah. and uh yeah, so yeah, that's wonderful. Well, do we have anything else that we want to comment on? Uh, I know that we can't possibly do everything justice, and there are certainly many more conversations to be had spun out of this movie. But anything else we want to, uh, we would we would feel we did not do it justice to not tip our hat at before we leave. I think we should at least mention something about the fact that that there's there's a an idea of what is your purpose and what were you created created for that yeah. that is running through this movie and um it yeah that that probably deserves more time than we have but that is something that um yeah we could have a whole another conversation about probably um but I I really love it um and I love that that idea runs through this movie um both its dark sides and its light sides I guess um. And then the other thing that I just would, you know, uh, just tipping my hat to um, M. Night in general is I feel like he went through this phase um, with with uh, Sixth Sense and this movie and Signs in particular of like, what if what if everything is not the way that you think it is? Like, what if ghosts actually are there? What if aliens actually are there? What if superheroes actually are there? And I, I appreciate uh, his efforts to re-enchant the world a little bit in that way. I appreciate that theme. Jay? I had wanted to bring up something about how he sees apparently other people. One thing that struck me is one of the – it's not the first time, but like the first time that Dunn goes out to intentionally hone his skills, and he goes – I think it's like to the, to the subway or a train station or something like that. And I know that it was done for artistic style, but literally every person that touches him has some secret that they're holding mm-hmm. or some some evil that they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we, we just don't get, oh, you know, I went grocery shopping. You know, we get the thief and the rapist and eventually the murderer. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's way- like pardon yeah. yeah so there was I, I thought that was an interesting choice that number one that he that they would choose to make literally every person some sort of a criminal which then again you know that ability is in all of us in my opinion right you know, um but then also dunn's choice not to go after the first person that he sees that committed a crime but actually wait I don't want to say wait for something bigger, but he didn't go after the first person. <laughs> mm-hmm. He did we. So I don't know. I hadn't fully fleshed out that thought, but there was something there about human nature. Hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting to. It would. It, it would. I, I, it would. I wonder if there's a. I would love. I would love to watch this with a with with director commentary. <laughs> because i i feel like he he's so thoughtful about so much of the things that we have observed in the film that uh i I just i can't imagine that he doesn't have thoughts about (laughs) about every single bit (laughs) yeah i say what you will about his work but everything is intentional yeah yeah well one thing that I would like to say before uh, before we go is that the final fight isn't really one. <laughs> he mm-hmm. jumps he jumps on the guy's back and choke holds him until he goes down. Like that. That's it. That's the fight. <laughs> but the only power that he needs in order to overcome in that moment is the ability to get run into walls and keep holding on. All he has to do is be really, really strong and really, really durable. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. There were, there was something for some reason that scene to me, uh, that's the scene. That's the first scene I remember with music. I don't know that it's the only scene with music and I'm sure there were scenes with music before that, but that's the first one where I really noticed the music playing, Almost, 
kind of plaintive, romantic. It's not action scene music, right? It's not like thumping, heart pumping music. It's it's like emotional swelling music. And all he's doing is just hanging on to this guy, getting run into stuff. And, uh, yeah, you just kind of have to watch it. it. It really affected, really affected me. And I wasn't really sure what to name, why, I, uh, how, how to, how to express why I was feeling affected, but there was just something about him hanging on and getting run into stuff and not letting go. That was really, uh, I don't know really effective yeah there's a the, there's several points in this movie where the camera just does not turn away yeah. at the way you would expect it to and so i mean in most fight scenes like there's there's more cuts than there are punches you know <laughs> like yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, and whereas in this scene you just watch the whole you know brutal action right down to the end and it's not the only moment in the movie where where he uses that uh effectively this that long camera shot and so um but i do think there's something about that like not being able to turn away um that goes along with that like hanging on um that that does make that scene effective and i'm i haven't seen the other two films in the trilogy so i'm not sure how their relationship goes on but at least by the end of the film you see him doing the same thing in his marriage yeah yeah. Ah, so good. All right. Well, yeah, that's a great insight, Jay. Yeah, thank thank you for for mentioning that. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, ah, so good. That when when the sun comes in and they're eating breakfast and they're talking and they're having fun and they're friends and oh, it's just so beautiful. Yeah, his face <laughs> is so like what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, lovely. All right. Well, dear listeners, this is, alas, all that we have time for. Um, We hope that if you haven't seen this movie yet, that we've motivated you to do it. And even though we spoiled the ending, well, we haven't really spoiled the ending. I think this is a movie not just to watch, but to rewatch. And for those of you who have watched it, um, if you have further comments on things that we didn't note, um, We'd love to hear it. Uh, or, or if you disagree with us, that's that's cool too. Um, the ways to contact us are uh, Gmail, the Christian Humanist at gmail.com, or uh, show the show notes for the blog, uh, ChristianHumanist.org. Those are the two best ways. We're also on Twitter, CH Radio Network, and uh, I think uh, uh, I'm on Twitter, the real Grubzy. You're on Twitter, Jay. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at JP Eldred. Mm-hmm. Are you on Twitter, Josh? Um, I used to be. I'm trying to get back to that uh, pre-social media lifestyle that I mentioned earlier. So uh, <laughs> I, I thought I remembered you having been on there, and then and then you know, and then you weren't. But yeah, that, that, so. that, that, that that's cool. Uh, well, in the meanwhile, dear listeners, uh, we hope you're that you're enjoying all the rest of the shows in the Crossover Network. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to listening through to the commentary about the, the M night Shyamalan films that I've enjoyed and the ones that I haven't anyway. Well, I wish you all grand weeks and the Christian humanist podcast is a show on the Christian humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic and our editor is Michael Farmer. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>